This morning, I would like to give you a thesis or basic concept of what I want to preach about from 1 Corinthians 13. My thesis is simply this. The dominant characteristic of a spiritually mature Christian entails the consistent expression of agape love in the varied circumstances and situations of our lives. If you want to be a spiritually mature person, I'm suggesting, you have to learn to love. That is not easy. We have no real good or constant expression of love within our Western society. Only Jesus is a true expression of love. Let's turn to this text. Let me give you three words that I would like to talk about. Really, there are two. The last one is simply a conclusion. These three words are indispensability, empathy, and then finally, I didn't know how to phrase it, but I'm just calling it a, a startling conclusion, but a logical one. <laughs> Let's take a look at this just briefly. Let's take a look at the quality that marks the ministry of love, which is indispensability. Let us look at 1 Corinthians 1 through verse 3. And this text reads as follows. If I speak with the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, if I have the gift of prophecy and can perform all, fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, and if I give my possessions all to the poor and give over my body to the hardship that I may boast, then you have the conclusion. This if word in the original Greek text is interesting. There are three ways to say if conditions in the Greek, New Testament Greek text. This one means that if the condition, is, the condition is true, so is the conclusion the true. For example, if you say to your children, you can go to the movies only if, and here's the condition, you eat your spinach. If you eat your spinach, then you conclude you can go to the movies. That's the context of these verses. They read as follows as we looked at them. I would like to draw... Three deductions, three thoughts from this, these first three verses. But let me take a look at it this way. I did this last Sunday, but in a different context. But let's say God, I was praying, and God says, what do you want me to do for you? And I say to the Lord, I would like you to give me eloquence in speech. Eloquence as great as the angels. I would like that, Lord. How about giving that gift to me? Then I pause and says, no, I... I don't think I want that one. I think there's a better one. Lord, give me extraordinary insight, spiritual insight and knowledge so that people would come and say, boy, let's go to, not true, but it's nice to think, that people would ask me and I could give them answers to all the questions that they have about the Christian faith. Now, that would be a nice gift. No, wait a minute, Lord. There might be a better one. Would you give me extraordinary faith that I could say to the mountain, move and the mountain would be gone. Now that would be a great, powerful gift for ministry. Oh, maybe not. Maybe there's a better one. What if I had unconditional dedication? Everything that I possess, I give to the poor. I give my body to hardships. Now that would make a great Christian minister. But what does Paul say? If you do not have love... It is meaningless, ineffective. 
My question to myself is, do you really believe that? <laughs> Don't we work very hard to be eloquent? I'm not. There are a lot of great preachers. I'm not one of them, but there are great preachers. It'd be nice to be so eloquent that people would stand in awe about the nature of the gospel. I'm reminded of John, of the death of Lazarus, when his sisters said to Jesus, come, he's dying. Jesus took his time, finally got there, and they said, if you'd have been here, it wouldn't have happened. And Jesus says, but you forget, I am the resurrection and the life. Even though he dies, yet shall he live. And then he paused and said, do you believe that? And I guess my question to us this morning is, if I have all of these great, wonderful gifts, I can speak with the tongues of men and angels. I have great knowledge, spiritual insights to all the mysteries and knowledge of the gospel. If I had great faith, and you had to build something new in the church, well, let's have the, the member of our church, let him pray and have faith, and it will come forward. Wow. But if I don't have love, it's meaningless. Let me draw three thoughts from this. Three, I call them three deductive principles. The first principle is this that I gained from these first three verses. All that we do in ministry and in the Christian life and to a great extent in our personal relationships is at some level deficient if love is absent. That's what I hear him say. There's all the great things, but if you don't have love, it's not effective. That's the first principle I gave. The second principle that I would deduce is that love is not in itself an independent virtue except in God. Love is the kind of a capsulizing word, a containing word. Let me illustrate. If I say to you or to anyone, I love my wife, so I'm going to go home and tell her, well, that would be nice. But to really practice love, I might have to say, will you do the, wash the floor? Will you take out the garbage? Will you do the dishes? Sure, I'm glad to do it for you. She would never ask me to cook, though. <laughs> <laughs> love expresses itself in those kinds of virtues. Forgiveness, mercy, compassion, kindness. It just doesn't stick out there. Except God contains all of these virtues. That's the second principle that I draw. The third one is that love contains or love constitutes what I'm going to call an emotional disposition. That may be a new word for you. It was for me. I borrowed this phrase from Robert Roberts, professor at Baylor University. It was at Wheaton. An emotional disposition is not itself an emotion, but it is the capacity within me to express an emotion. For example, you're driving your car down the road, suddenly here comes this guy in a brand new sports car, boom, and you're in the road, you're only doing 65, though the, the speed limit is 50, he wants to go by and you're getting upset with him. And you might express yourself in unchristian manners. <laughs> but if I haven't said that week, I said to the Lord, I need to be more patient. And, and now you have an opportunity to do it. Patience will be an expression of love toward this guy. I usually just say, well, I think he's going to the hospital. Maybe somebody's dying. I'm, I think of some reason why I wouldn't get upset with this guy who's tailgating me. I had a good friend. 
we were talking one day about love, and she was saying, you know, my daughter just came home from the hospital. She had something, a problem in her jaw, and it had to be wired together. And as we go home, every little bump would cause her pain. So I was trying, she said, to drive, and I was driving quite slowly. I had more people angry with me. If she had a disposition, an emotional disposition to be patient, then patience would emerge. And so I worked with God to bring with me not simply an emotion, but an emotional disposition in particular ways in which I can respond. So that's the first thing I learned from this text. That if I'm going to minister and be a person, a spiritual person that reflects God, then I need to have that kind of emotional disposition that reflects that. I don't know if any of us really get to that place where we're really full of love in the manner in which God asks us. The second thing that I have found in this text, and it comes in the following verses. Verses 4 all the way down up to verse 12. In these verses, I'm going to suggest the empathy. This is, we had indispensability. The empathy that guides the ministry of love. Now, the, the empathy that guides the ministry of love is found as that which assists us in that emotional disposition. Listen to verses, these verses it's about empathy. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not self-seeking. It does not dishonor others. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Boy, that one we have to read twice. Love does not delight in evil. Well, I don't like those guys. They're so bad. <laughs> I'm not sure I can share love with them. It rejoices in evil. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be silenced. So here we have what empathy. Empathy is an interesting concept. I think all of you are aware of the meaning of empathy. Empathy means when you can, it's the capacity to place oneself in another situation, to feel their pain, to feel their despair, to feel their shame, whatever they may be struggling with. Empathy. These kinds of phrases in this section are things that I develop and understand so that I may reach out in love to another. I think the most recent or one of the things that gives me the meaning of empathy is that when I was senior pastor at Northbrook Alliance Church several years ago now, many, we had a lot of events, most churches did, on Wednesday, prayer meeting, Bible studies, youth groups, so forth. I was standing in my office when someone came run and said, Pastor, Pastor, little girl got hurt down by the gym. What happened? She hurt her finger. And I said, well, how? So I rushed down there to see what this little girl was. Bravest little kid I ever saw. Oh, my, it hurts, Pastor. She had got her fingers caught and somebody closed the door on her fingers. But it wasn't just where the door closes. It was on the inside by the hinges. Wow, can't you just feel how that hurts? That's empathy that we reach out toward others. I want to, do, I want to say a couple de 
bring a couple of deductive principles that I gather from this. First of all, my first principle is love prompts an attitude that suspends a negative response or judgment for the benefit or maturing of another. Love does not keep record of wrongs. I will hold my judgment against you for the benefit of you. Somebody does something to you. You stand at the high moral ground. I have a right to get at bad of them and not to forgive them. I mean, look what they did. Love and empathy understands them and withholds a negative response with the purpose that their spiritual life may grow. Love never fails. It always perseveres at hopes. And so I can say, okay, I can understand. I seek to understand why the person did what they did and offer forgiveness. Let me pause and bring something a little bit differently into forgiveness. Christian forgiveness is different than normal psychological concepts. If you're having great struggles in forgiving someone and you go to a psychologist, if he is trained in the normal training, what he tries to do is to remove that feeling within yourself. Got to get rid of it. In Christian forgiveness, you do the same, except for element. You seek to draw that person back into the fellowship which you have separated them from. When Christ forgave us, he didn't just say, okay, and this is some of my problems with strict justification. You're forgiven, good luck. He draws you back into the fellowship that you may be restored and made whole. And so my first thought that I said, love prompts an attitude that suspends negative judgment or response for the benefit of the other. Secondly, principle that I draw from these verses is that love constitutes a way of knowing. Love helps us to understand and to know another. It is, in, in essence, love perceives the significance of another. When we perceive the significance of another, not what they possess or not what gifts, just you, you are important. Then we see another just as God sees them. We come closest to seeing a person as God's him. What love does for another is gives the perception of her unconditional significance. That is, to see a person as God sees them or him. One of the difficulties we have in perceiving someone just as they are is we see only our own unconditional significance. And so love is a way of perceiving the significance of another person. So that's the second idea I get out of empathy. The third principle, I, not only a way of knowing, but love does not permit knowledge acquired of another's harm to determine future responses. That's why you won't tell me what bad things you've got. Because I'll keep, I'll remember them. I remember back when I was doing my doctoral studies, there was a little Alliance church there who had been several years without a pastor. They had a wonderful parsonage. My wife and three children were living in this small little room at the university. You had to ask permission to move around almost. 
And anyway, they called and said they knew that I was here. I was an alliance man. Would I become their pastor? And I said, sure, and you can use our new parsonage. It's brand new, been empty for three years. In our congregation was a retired Nazarene pastor. We became very good friends. And one day he said after the service, Don, I'd like to talk to you if I can. And so I said, sure. I went over to his house, and his, he had two children, a son and a daughter. Both were in some serious problems. And so he explained them to me, and we had prayer. And as I was leaving, he said something to me that I've always remembered. He says, you know why I told you? Because I know when I told you, you wouldn't then think differently of me than you do now. Love, in my view, does not permit the knowledge I've acquired from another to determine future relationships. So this is the empathy that guides the ministry of love. And finally, I have a conclusion, a startling conclusion, but a logical one. It's verse 13. Verse 13 reads this way. Now there are three remaining things. Faith, hope, and love. Now comes the startling part. But the greatest of these is love. And I thought, well, wait a minute. Paul. Faith, says Paul, faith. One cannot please God without faith, who believes that he is and the one who rewards them. So faith is so central. Why would you say this? And hope. Because of the Hebrew says, hope is the anchor of the soul, strong and secure. We cannot live without hope. In World War II, the Japanese discovered to those they had captured that if they could somehow remove any sense of hope for them, they would no longer be a forceful enemy. So they would write, open the letters that come from a wife or someone and write a new one. And that you might be a confined to prison or so forth. And you're, the thing that I long for is to see my wife and my children again. So he gets a letter. Sweetheart, I'm sorry it's been so long since you've been gone and I'm so lonely. I have remarried and I remarried your first, your greatest friend and he has adopted your children. And the poor soldier would say, what's, that's what's kept me alive. How do I do that? But the greatest, greater than that, greater than faith is love. I could hardly grasp the concept. We all want to have greater faith in the Lord. We all want him to come to our needs when, we, when we're lost hope, when our financial resources are gone, when our minds cannot grasp what's going on. We need someone to come beside and say, hope, trust in the Lord. But greater than that is love. No wonder we have such a hard time grasping love at this point. Love is the greatest thing that you can I work toward in our lives. On all occasions and in every situation, as hard as it is, practice love. There have been times, I'm sure you've had them too. You'll be at a grocery store or standing in line to pay for the things you've purchased at the store. And there's a person in front of you that's just mad because the one in front of him took so long and he's griping and gives the cashier person difficult time and she just responds graciously kindly and you think I wonder if she's a Christian 
love. I meet a lot of people who are struggling, struggling with all kinds of addictions, difficulties, marital difficulties. And the one thing that can sustain them is that love we have received from Christ and we share toward them. And so Paul says, yes, faith is important. So is hope. It's indispensable. But not like love. Let's learn how to love. And, we're no, and that's not an easy task because we don't know really what it is except in Jesus Christ. We don't see it. Often, sometimes you'll see it. Self-sacrificing, selfless response from a Christian to one who may not seem to do it. And it comes often at cost to us as it did to our Lord. And so Paul reflects on it. You can have all the great gifts and abilities, but if you do not have love, they are not effective. So let us strive. Say, Lord, I don't know what it means, but let me try it. It comes when you open up your life and allow the Holy Spirit to start to reproduce in you those virtues which we identify with the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And those responses will come when we have a deep emotional love for the Lord and for one another, as God said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> that last part, we'd like to cut off because you don't know my neighbors. <laughs> Well, I do. I have great neighbors. You may not. Someone in church. We have struggles. Churches split. But love should sustain us. Let us try with God's help to be those who practice love for it gives us a way to seeing the difficult things of others. Let us pray. Father, this is not a complex thought but a deep one if we just try to understand the full concept of what love means. We don't know how to do it, Lord, because we see only ourselves as unconditionally significant. Help us to see others too, especially those who are unloving or unlovable. Let's surprise them. Help us to surprise them, Lord, with as we reach out and embrace them with the love of Christ. And we ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.